Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, in through LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. Hi, uh, welcome audience. This is James Kandasamy um, from Achieve Investment Group. Today, we're going to be having a webinar on passive investors' tax benefits. Uh, and let me just quickly introduce uh, myself. I mean, usually we do this for our investors, but uh, you know, we have a lot of people who are new to us. So we just want to give you guys some introduction. Uh, this is Shanti and I. Uh, we are with Achieve Investment Group. Uh, I focus a lot on acquisition and investor relationship. She focuses on property and construction management. We have asset under management more than $130 million in value uh, with our passive investors, 1,700 units across nine large uh, multifamily in Austin and San Antonio, Texas. Uh, we have raised almost $35 million with 228 unique investors. Um, expertise are vertically integrated function. We find off-market deals and quickly turn around value at deals. We also won the San Antonio Apartment Association for year 2017, and I have a CCIM, which is basically the black belt uh, designation in, in uh, commercial real estate. In case you guys do not know, a lot of you are passive investors. The only book out there for passive investors and talk about passive investors' perspective for commercial real estate is this book. It's a bestseller in Amazon. Uh, you have Kindle, audiobook, and paperback, so you have no reason not to read it. You, know, you can read it while driving as well. So we have 38 five-star reviews in Amazon. We have sold thousands of this book uh, without me promoting it as well. Uh, in case you do not know, I have my own podcast, which is called Achieve Wealth Through Value Real Estate Investing, and our Facebook group uh, almost have 4,000 members uh, in the past 10 months. You join me there, um, you can see a lot more of me there. Um, and we also have our own uh, mentoring program, which we like launched like three three months ago. And uh, the first batch of uh, students who have learned from us have graduated. And uh, we're going to be doing, um, you know, our own road trip uh, to learn the, the, you know, put the, uh, like making the rubber meet the, uh, road uh, kind of thing, uh, road trip kind of thing that's going to happen in San Antonio soon. So I'm going to pass to Nate after this. Uh, Nate, are you there? I am. Okay, I'm going to stop sharing, Nate. So go ahead. Okay, let me grab my one of my screens here, make sure I get the right one. Okay. All right, let me know if you can see that on your end. Yeah, I can see it. Go ahead. Okay. I lost the web, I lost my connection on my side, so I guess that means I'm I'm live. Well, yes, first off, my name is Nate Roberts. Uh, I work. I'm the tax director at Lifetime Tax Advisors. We are a division of the Lifetime Companies, and 
Let me start off by thanking James. I appreciate you having me on here so I can talk about something that we like to talk about with our clients pretty much on a daily basis. More than half of our clients are involved in real estate, whether it's as a syndicator or whether it's as a passive. And a lot of the fun for us is getting a chance to explain how it works So and kind of let people know that there are a lot of benefits that are available through real estate that aren't available in a lot of other investing venues. So I'll quickly just kick to the next slide, which is here's a picture of me. I will, I will skip to the next slide very quickly, but we work with advisor, or I'm an, I'm an advisor consultant to businesses and individuals. I oversee operations here. I'm a CPA. Notice there's a little disclaimer there at the bottom. This will be the second time. It'll show up again, but we're not a registered CPA firm. It's because I don't like dealing with a lot of red tape being a CPA. I like being a CPA, like being able to perform the things that we can do as a CPA. I just like you know the, the, the freeness of not being a CPA firm. And as you'll see down there at the bottom, I'm, I'm also a passive real estate investor. I like real estate, and I and for that reason, I invest. So I'm yeah. not just I'm not just touting this just because of the fact that I don't believe in the product. You know, I I, I believe in it, and I'm putting my own money into it as well. Yeah, you still and, have to make uh, your own decisions, but but that should but you know I, I think it's I, I think I'll I'll just add that that you know I, I'm I'm in the passive boat with a lot of these people. Yeah. So, Nate, uh, how many deals have you invested as a passive investor? Roughly. Uh, I've got to go back and I've got to I've got to I've got to go back and count. I think it's seven deal, seven or eight deals right now. Okay. 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 So, yeah, we're going to be. Uh, I mean, as you guys have talked, I mean, the title is you know, a lot of focus on passive uh, tax benefits. So, um, so we're going to go a lot into that. Uh, on top of some of the benefits on the, you know, active investors as well, but we're going to focus a lot on passive as well. Go ahead, Anit. Yeah. So before I get into all this, let me make the usual disclosure that any tax guy that doesn't want to deal with somebody coming back and saying, hey, you said this in a webinar, why, why can't I use it? This is for educational purposes only. So before you say, hey, I'm, I'm going to go do this, I would suggest that you get with your tax person and make sure that it fits you. So this is just to give you a lay of the land. This is kind of a 30,000-foot overview. But that being said, the situation is different. So just because it works in one situation, what works for one of my clients may not be the same thing I'd recommend for another. And even for that same client, on different years, I may do things differently. So you want to make sure that you understand the ins and the outs before you jump in. So at that point... You know, when you're, when you're looking for somebody to invest with, and if you're looking to invest with, with James, he can help you with that side. When it comes down to legal, tax, other professional advice, I suggest you get with those people who are registered and qualified to do so. I also just suggest that, you know, interview a couple. Make sure you're comfortable with the person that you're going to deal with. So I always like to start off with this. Albert Einstein, the guy who came up with E equals MC squared, which is still something that I don't grasp, said the hardest thing in the world to understand is the income tax. We'll start off with something that seems relatively simple at the surface. Individuals, you've got tax rates that start at 10%, 12%, 22 24 up to 37% right now. If, you may, if you're single in 2019, 
and you make over $510,000, every dollar you make over 510-301 is taxed at 37%. If you're married filing jointly, it's 612. Just from a numbers game, that part seems pretty easy. Now let's get into just some basics on types of income that are out there in the tax code. There's ordinary income. For those of you who have a W-2 job, that falls in this ordinary bucket. You have investment income. Investment income is more things like your investments in stocks and bonds and and other portfolio assets that kick off interest and dividends, and, and, and the rules are a little bit different than the ordinary income. And then there's this this bucket called the passive bucket. This one causes lots of of confusion for a lot of people. Even a lot of the IRS agents I talk to sometimes struggle understanding exactly how the rules fit and, and work together. So sometimes there's an education even with the IRS agents as we kind of dig down into this is how these things work and this is you know you get, this is where you go find the rules on this so that they know how to apply it to one of my clients or somebody else that comes to the door. So the general rule is all all rental activities fall in this passive bucket, the third one I was just talking about. That's the one we're going to focus on tonight. We're talking about passive income. As a passive investor, this is the one that really applies. So one of the major rules to understand with passive investing is passive losses mainly offset other passive income. So if it's in the passive bucket, you can't apply it to the investment bucket or the ordinary bucket. There's a qualified business bucket, which is kind of a new thing since January 1st of 2018. That's I, I just pointed out just for just for your knowledge to know that's out there, but that's a whole other a whole other conversation to have. But so if you have so let's kind of set the stage here. If you have no other passive income to offset your passive losses, those passive activity losses carry forward indefinitely until there's passive income to offset the losses or the activity and property sold. And we will briefly touch on special exceptions that apply for rental real estate, but that's also a different – that's a completely different presentation. Related, but different presentation. So, Nate, a quick question. So, when you say rental real estate, I mean, uh, we are talking about one is – syndicated, uh, like multifamily, where people become passive. And sometimes the passive have their own, uh, you know, investment houses, right? Like they have single family homes, like five to six single family homes. How is that different in terms of rental activities? They're all rentals, but depending on what your levels of activity are, you, you could be a, you could be actively involved in your single families and you could be a passive in an investment or you could even be a real estate professional. So that's, let's kind of, let's kind of dig into that here a little bit. So rental real estate losses, what we just covered was kind of the first layer of the rules. If you've got losses you have, and you have no other passive income, in general, you you usually can't use them until you've got passive income. Now, if you're if you're active, up to twenty five thousand dollars of your real estate losses can be taken as a deduction against other earned income. This phases out though when your adjusted gross income goes over one hundred thousand dollars, and by the time you hundred fifty hundred fifty thousand dollars, it's completely gone. So for every dollar, you, for every two dollars, you of deduction. 
Now, what is what is that? Active participation means you're involved in the management decisions, locating, purchasing the house, rehabbing the property, approving the tenants, the lease terms, the rent collection. You've got to be you've got to be involved in management somehow. And then here's the one that gets everybody excited, especially my lawyers and doctors and people who are making lots and lots of money. And here's a way to reduce their income. This is the real estate professional. This one won't apply as a passive, but I'm still going to cover it because people get interested and this is what gets people into syndicating and and doing this stuff full time. We've moved from the passive bucket, which no losses are deductible. If you're active, they're deductible as long as your income's in a certain threshold. If your income goes over $150,000, you're pretty much in the same passive bucket. And then there's this real estate professional. This is kind of that holy grail of real estate investing. At this point, you're not you're not passive, and we move the income from that passive bucket to the ordinary income bucket. So that income can be applied against all sorts, or usually you want to use this when you've got taxable losses. But this is where you can use the real estate losses to offset other income. To qualify, you must be active, so not passive. You have to have 750 hours of service in a real estate business, and that's defined, and there's lots and lots and lots of course ca- court cases on this. And here's the other one that catches people off, off guard is more than half of all of your hours of personal services have to be in real estate. So if you're working 40 hours a week, this means you need at your regular job, then you have to be working 40 hours a week in, real, in a real estate business, and you still have to have at least one more hour than you had in the other job. So if you're working... 40 hours a week in your regular job and you're working 40 hours a week in rental real estate, you're putting in at least 80 hours a week to get there. That being said, it only takes one spouse to qualify. So if the husband doesn't, but the wife does, you can still get there and you can still take these benefits. If the wife does, if the wife doesn't qualify, but the husband does same thing, it it just has to be one. But this real estate professional doesn't impl- doesn't apply when you're a passive investor. So just to be clear, real estate professional is kind of a is kind of a subcategory of this area. So a quick question, uh, Nate, because this is one of the questions that I always least uh, get from my passive investors. So let's say they are, let's say their spouse is having a, you know three rental houses and spending 750 hours. Can they qualify as a real estate professional? Uh, usually they're going to have at least six. If you've got three houses and you're spending 750 hours, you're probably spending a lot more time on the houses than you should be. But I'm sorry, I had, I had to say it. But yeah, I mean, I've had people ask me about one house with 750 hours. I'm like, I think you okay. bought the wrong house. <laughs> but that, be, that, be, that being said. Tenant and toilets problem. Yeah, right? you can. So. <laughs> yeah. That being said, you can be a real estate professional on your single families and you can still be a passive in some other deals. I've got real estate professionals on their own deals. They invest in other people's deals and they're a passive in their investments in other people's deals because they're not as involved. They're really not involved. So there, there's a lot of additional rules that we're not. We're we're just doing the overview here, but you really have to be putting in five at least five hundred hours as a real estate. You have to qualify as a real estate professional. You have to be putting in five hundred hours in the deal, so you have to be materially participating. There's a lot more rules, but if you're a passive, and usually the way I kind of look at it is this: 
passive pretty much means, and this is how I do it, I write a check, and somebody else goes and does all the work, and as the cash starts coming in, I walk down to my, to my mailbox and I pick up a check, or they send the money, they wire the money over. You know, some, something where I'm really not involved. Somebody else is doing the work, and I and I'm just invested in it, just like any other business. So hopefully that kind of helps you. You can be a real estate professional in some areas and be a passive in others. How if uh, if someone say key, key key principle right, which is sign on a loan, they become part of the GP right, or they do some small percentage of a GP ship in the syndication. Do they consider as real estate professional? It would be a really, really rare situation. I think I, I, I could, I could see some scenarios where it's possible, but they have to be. If all they're doing is signing on the on the loan, five hundred more hours in that deal, and so they're pro, they're probably going to be challenged to to get over that threshold. Okay. And what about so, GP? Let's say someone doing a small role for, let's say they get a 1% of the GP ship uh, for investor relationship. Will they be considered as a real estate professional? Their ownership wouldn't qualify if they're just getting 1%. So so that, that starts getting into a lot of technical rules on it, but you've got to, you've got to own more than 10% of the deal. You've got to have more than 500 hours in it. You've got to have more, you've got to meet all the criteria to be a, a real estate professional. So, okay. When it starts getting into a lot of that detail, that's a really great time to pick up the phone and say, you know what, it's going to take me two weeks to figure this out. I probably should find somebody who knows what they're talking about and make sure that what I think I'm understanding is right. Because what what so, what we can probably answer in, in 30 minutes or an hour or two hours based on somebody's facts and circumstances, he may spend weeks on trying to figure it out. He may not even come up with the right answer. But in general, to be safe, like you know, like more than ten percent ownership, five hundred hours in that deal, then they're considered a real estate professional, I guess. Oh, yeah, and, and I probably should clarify here: seven hundred fifty hours, and it's this is on, this is on a property by property basis. So, if you have, let's say, ten properties, you have to have seven hundred fifty hours in each property to qualify as a real estate professional. Or there's some elections we can take to group some things together. So, oh, that's and, and that that again gets it. Yeah. So, seven hundred fifty hours so is that, by, that by property, I guess, right? Yeah, it's by property, actually. Oh, okay. So, if if you think about it, you don't have if you got ten properties, that's seven thousand five hundred hours in a year. I don't I don't remember the actual number of hours in a year, but it's that's more hours than you have in a year. So, yeah. If 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 you show somebody who's doing that, I'm thinking they're going off. They've got. They've got a an IV with caffeine that's pumping them <laughs> pumping them full of caffeine. Okay. Got it. But that's that's why there are other things that you look at, but you just want to be aware of the implications down the road as well. Yeah. For the listeners, you can put in your Q and A in the Q and A box or the chat box. Uh, go ahead and do that. We'll answer all questions at the end once we go through it. I mean, I'll try to ask whatever questions that I've I've some people asked me beforehand uh, to Nate, uh, but. We'll go through the webinar and answer all questions at the end. Yeah. Go ahead. And there's usually a lot, especially this is one of the favorite slides that gets a lot of interest. So I, I would not be surprised if there's a lot of questions on this when we get to the end. And so we'll and, kind of hit it from a general perspective. 
Okay, and we'll, we'll just try and help help people yeah. get a better overview. Yeah. Hey, Nate, I think your microphone is a bit too close to your mouth. Uh, can you put a bit okay. further out? Is that is that a little better? Uh, I think or so. Not? Yeah. Go ahead. I think that's better. I'll I'll, I'll try. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, yeah. People say it's better. That's good. Go ahead. Okay. My apologies. All right. So let's do a very very simple illustration here. These aren't real numbers, obviously. They're way too round, but it should help people understand a little bit of the difference between cash flowing and tax benefits. So if we just look at that left side of the screen, let's say we've got a property that is bringing in a million dollars in rents during the course of a year. And maybe the expenses are $900,000. Our net cash flow is $100,000. Let's just keep it simple without all all the extra detail. Now, here's where this is one of the things I love about real estate. I can have a business that's making money, and yet I may be able I can take advantage of some non-cash expenses and have a taxable loss. So that that same hundred thousand dollars of cash flow, if I still got a million bucks, I've got nine hundred thousand dollars of rental expenses, got the hundred thousand dollars of of cash flow. But let's let's say let's assume this is a five point five million dollar building, depreciated over twenty seven and a half years. I can have I would have depreciation of two hundred thousand dollars that I get to deduct on my tax return, which gives me a tax taxable loss of hundred thousand dollars. So if you notice the net cash flow positive hundred thousand dollars, but I'm not picking up tax on hundred thousand dollars. I've got a taxable I've got a tax loss of hundred thousand dollars. So therein lies lies the power of some of the some of the advantages available as part of real estate. Something this is I love how the laws are written, and all we're doing is just taking advantage of what's legally out there and using it to our clients' best advantage. So and just just so people understand what depreciation is, it's really just a reduction in the value of the asset with passage of time, usually due to wear and tear. So think about your car. When you buy a brand new car, in a year, it's not worth as much because you've driven it, it's got miles, it's got wear and tear. You wouldn't pay the same amount for a used car as you do for a new car. That's really what the IRS is giving us with the depreciation. They're saying we bought the building and we're going to give you the wear and tear. And so you get to you get to deduct that on top of it. Everybody, hopefully that's clear so far. So, yeah, cash income, okay. tax loss. Okay. Now, so let's kind of let's break this down into a simple illustration. Pretty much using the same info I just presented into three different buckets here. First one's real estate professional. This is the per- this is the person that's running the deal and putting in all the hours, putting in all the work. They've got the income, they've got the expenses, and just to make the numbers simple, I'm, I'm assuming 10, 10% partners. So the real estate professional has a, gets $100,000 in taxable income, $90,000 in expenses, 20, oops, no, $20,000 in depreciation, which should be across everybody, and the taxable loss is $10,000. So just to assume that everybody gets in the same tax rate and everybody's at 37%, this isn't 
this is where you got you've got to analyze everybody's facts and circumstances. As a real estate professional, that ten thousand dollars, if you can take that ten thousand dollars at thirty seven percent tax loss, you have no suspended losses. You can reduce your taxes by thirty seven hundred bucks. Let's say you've got a passive investor with five thousand dollars of passive income. That ten thousand dollars, they get to use half of it. They get to use five thousand dollars against their their other taxable income. And so at 37%, they get an $1,850 benefit, and then they got $5,000 that carries forward to a future year. If you got a passive investor with without any passive income, that whole $10,000 kind of builds up behind a dam, and when there's some passive income, it releases, and they can use it against an income down the road. So I like Will Rogers because he kind of understands people in general. The income tax has been around for over 100 years. People have been trying to figure out how they get around it. And, you know, let's just say people can get a little creative. And so I've, I've always liked this quote from Will Rogers. Now, this one's going to start to kind of build on a concept. and. It, so I'm going to try and explain this one here just to give everybody a little bit of an idea of how this kind of starts and finishes. So that prior example was just, let's say, a, a year of operations. Let's just take a different number, a, a different illustration here. Let's say we purchase a $30 million building, put in a million bucks in rehab costs. We got $31 million in, into a building. We allocate some to land. I picked my magical $27,500,000 for my depreciable basis because it makes the numbers really easy. And so in, some, in, in this scenario, it gives me a yearly depreciation of a million bucks. Let's say five years down the road, we sell that same $30 million building for $40 million bucks. And maybe our sales costs are $20 million bucks. Our property basis, and, and I'll explain this here in a second, is $26 million bucks, which is that $31 million minus the $5 million of depreciation we've taken. So our basis has dropped a little bit. We get a gain on sale. And if you remember that 37% ordinary rate that we were talking about? Now we pick up $7 million in capital gain. It's going to be at about 15 to 20%. You know, there, there's some other little rules out there, but for... For illustration purposes, we're going to say seven million of that twelve million is going to be taxed at usually about fifteen to twenty percent, and then that five million dollars in depreciation, it could be taxed up to about twenty-five percent. There's some other rules, but let's just keep this simple so that you understand that we've just taken some things that were being taxed at thirty-seven percent. We've gotten advantage of them. We've gotten advantage of them later when we are picking back. Some of that picking back up some of that income, and there are other strategies to continue to kick this can down the road. That you know, some it's taxed at a lower rate. So instead of 37 percent, someone could be at 15, 20, 25 percent. So this this is where you're taking the character of the income and shifting it into a different a different category. So tax planning 101, you you know typically you're trying to get things taxed at a higher rate. Tax at a lower rate. This is a way. This is one of the ways that you accomplish that. So, so can you explain that again, um, Nate? How do we get from higher rate to lower rate using this real estate investing mechanism? Yeah. So let's go back to this this slide that we were hitting earlier. 
So let's say this is one of the years of operations. We've got income, we've got expenses, we're taking that depreciation, and that depreciation, if if our ordinary rate is 37% and that's what we're applying it against, we may be taking a tax loss at 37%, and five years down the road, we may be picking it back up at 15 20 25%. So, okay. again, all these things depend on your situation, but there is the potential to shift from a very high tax rate to a lower tax rate. Of course, there's always the potential that your income's higher and maybe, you know, this this doesn't play out that way. That's why you want to walk through these things with somebody who can help you analyze it. Yeah. But so this, this is we are talking about uh, this is we are talking about passive investors, right? I mean, this is how they change their uh, higher because of depreciation and at sale you're basically doing a capital gain uh, at 15 to 20%, that's one thing is lower, and the depreciation recapture is at 25%. So that's basically reducing from 37% to a lower rate, I guess, at sale. Right. Well, this is the passives and, and, and the real estate professionals. Yeah, both, both. Yeah, correct. Exactly. But passive investors so do now, get benefit out of this, I guess, right? Because they are right. using, using yeah, the real estate. Those who ha- exactly. And for those who have the suspended losses, those losses release against this, so maybe the tax, maybe some of it's not being taxed because you haven't been able to use it up until now. This is where you get the passive income that you can use all those all those pent up losses against. So you may not be picking up as much income, and when you do, it may be taxed at a lower rate. Yeah. So again, you've got you've got to know what what the factors look like, but this is the this is the concept. Yeah. Let me clarify some things to the listeners who are brand new to this, right? So the the purchase price is 30 million, rehab cost is 1 million, right? So what they call as property basis, that's basically the, I think, the how the tax world view this investment, right? I mean, this total property is 31 million because that's a rehab cost, which is added to the purchase price. That's the starting point. And then from 31 million, he's saying that we're assuming 1 million depreciation every year. So 1 million, 1 million for 5 million. So 31 minus five, you get the basis at sale at 26 million, right? So that's how you get the 26 million, right? From there, you calculate the gain uh, of 12 million and, and you know, you basically have out of that gain, some of it is uh, you have to recapture due to out of this 12 million, this 7 million is considered capital gain and the other one is 5 million, which is basically a depreciation, which is subject to recapture, right? So... That's where we got, you know, uh, seven million times, uh, I know, fifteen to twenty percent. You get, you know, one zero five zero, and then the twenty-five percent recapture is one, one point two five million. Yeah, at twenty percent, it would be two point four. Twenty percent on seven million would be one point four million. Okay, why? Uh, what's the difference between fifteen to twenty percent? I thought capital gain is always twenty percent. No, well, twenty percent usually if you're in the highest tax bracket. Okay. So there, there, there's different rules for okay. simplicity. I, I left it at the 15% rate because most people, if you're at 35% or lower, you're usually in the 15% rate. Oh, got but it. If you're in the 37%, your capital gains are usually at 20%. Yeah. And then yeah. there's some other rules. So to make it simple, I'm, 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 I'm still, I'm still making lots and lots of, I'm, I'm boiling it down. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. I mean, I mean, a lot of passive investors ask me, how do you get this benefit, right? So this whole thing is, is a big, it's a big uh, box, right? So you have first year, you're buying, you have depreciation every year, 
which you know you don't you don't pay tax on your cash flow right if your depreciation is always giving you a negative number and when you sell you're basically only putting you know 15 to 15 to 20% for capital gain and another 25% of recapture of whatever you took so that itself basically reduces your you know your rate that you pay from 37% to much lower rate right so 15 to 20% yeah. or 25% yeah so cash flow versus tax loss yeah and usually the main the main driver is depreciation yeah so the question is how do you get to 12 million right uh, let's just quickly cover that uh, on this slide yep gain okay, on so sale. That, okay so let's go back to that gain on sale so that property basis of 31 million bucks mm-hmm. subtract out 5 million bucks of depreciation brings me down to 26 million in basis So if I bought something just like a, let's say if I bought a stock at 100 or at 100 bucks and I sold it at 200 the IRS taxes me on the amount that I made. So if, if I sell it at 200, I bought it at 100, I get I get taxed on 100 bucks. Similar concept with the building. If I bought the the building at 30 million bucks, put in another million bucks, I got 31 into it. I reduce that a little bit by some by some of the depreciation I'm taking. So my basis drops as I'm taking depreciation. And then when I turn around and sell it, I get to use that against the sales proceeds because I'm not going to get taxed on money that, you know, I put into here. So I'm only getting taxed on the, the profit I made. So if I sell it at 40, I got 26 million in property basis. I got $2 million in sales costs. My gains 12 million bucks. And then, you know, there's some other rules and that's all, all, all I'm really trying to do is just be aware that, a portion could be at 25%. There's some other rules that kick in there too that make it a little more confusing, but this is just for illustration purposes to help you understand how it can how it defers tax. It's not tax free. There's other strategies that we we get into offline if if you're looking for that. But it does it does kick the can down the road. And this is a way to change the character so that you maybe able to take it against higher taxed income and pick it back up as lower taxed income. So this is this is what people this is one of the things about the tax law that people love with real estate. Yeah. Got it. So put in all put in all your questions in the Q&A or the chat box so we'll answer it at the end. Yeah. So I'm just going to throw this this form out there. It actually looks a little different for 2019. This came out recently, but this this is last year's form. So on the left hand of the, on the left hand side is where you get all the partnership information. So if you invest in a syndicated deal, left hand side pretty much says here's the partnership. I'm picking up the income personally or the taxable losses personally because it's subject to one level of of tax. If you invest in a, in a stock, it's a C corp. 99 and a half percent of the time. So the C Corp pays a tax, then they kick out a dividend or they or you sell it and you're picking up some more tax. In a partnership, your all the income and all the losses flow through flow through to you as a partner. And so this is how you pick it up. You get a K1 and so this is this is really the one this is the one piece of paper that everybody cares about at tax time. The underlying returns can be 500, 1,000, 2,000 plus pages, just depending on the complexity and the number of partners and everything else. But this is the one page that everybody's looking for, kind of like your W-2. 
and it tells you the character of where all the income comes in. So on the left-hand side, it identifies who the partnership is, who the partner is, tells you how some of the profits and losses and capital are allocated, tells you how much debt there is, and, and there's other rules behind that that I, I will rabbit trail if I try to explain them right here. So let's just say that they exist. If you've got additional questions, that's probably a good time to give us a call. The right side is where you're going to be picking up all of your income. So that top box is ordinary income. The second one is where you're really going to see a lot of those losses generally come through, just depending on the deal. But that's your rental real estate income or loss. And so that's where those losses, we're, those taxable losses that we've been covering up until now, that's where you see a lot of it. A little further down, rows 9C and 10 and some of those others are where we're, we're picking up those, those depreciation recapture and some long-term capital gains and losses if, if it sells in less than 12 months, short-term capital gain and loss. So this is all that stuff that we just covered, this is how it gets transmitted to you. And this is what the IRS gets, so this is what you want to put in your tax return. So that's that's a real quick overview of a K-1, just so that you know what it looks like, you kind of understand how how it ultimately gets to you. And then the next piece, so we've 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 broken down some of the depreciation, some of some of the general rules, and then here's where it gets it can get even more fun. So cost segregation. This is something we talk about with some of our clients because sometimes they want the benefits faster. So what's a cost segregation? It's something that helps me take my building, and maybe I don't want to wait 27 and a half years to get all my deductions because, you know what, some things in there maybe don't last 27 and a half years. And so what a cost segregation does is it takes the building and kind of breaks it down into its individual components and helps you figure out that maybe some of these things I can take depreciation over five years or seven years or, or 15 years. And with bonus depreciation, it could be even faster than that. So on average, and I guess the, the way I like to explain this to people is if you think about it kind of like an apple, think about the apple being like the building. If I just take an apple and I don't slice it apart, maybe I'm going to I'm going to enjoy that apple over 27 and a half years. But maybe I want to slice it apart and say, you know what, the core, I'm going to throw that away. So that's a little different. i got some of the seeds. I've got a stem. I've got, I've got the skin to the apple. These are all different parts. It's still the same apple, but you get an engineering firm, and they, they go through, they analyze the building and say, you know what, some of this stuff's only going to last five years. Some of this stuff's only going to last seven years. And you get to, instead of waiting the 27 and a half years, you get to take some of those benefits faster. So, and that's pretty much what the rest of this is explaining. Take that $27.5 million building. Normally, it's going to be depreciated a million bucks a year. After the study, let's take a real quick look at some differences. So, this will just kind of take you year by year. So, if I'm, and I, I got a little too technical on this, I apologize for that, but I had to geek out a little bit. Year one, you're actually not at $100,000. There's some, some, some fun little rounding things that the IRS throws in the code. So year one is actually 95000 bucks. Every year after that's 100 for a while. So let's just say that I take a cost segregation. on a th And I, these are actual numbers I ran through a program. So on a $2.7 million building, depending on how it all gets allocated out, some of the assumptions that we used, 
maybe in year one, I get I've got a million dollars of depreciation if I take bonus on on everything with the current tax laws, and then for the remainder of the life of this thing, I got sixty five thousand dollars a year. So I got an extra nine hundred twenty eight thousand dollars in depreciation in the first year. So I get all that extra benefit up front, and then I just don't have as much depreciation to use down the road. Or maybe in the other scenario, maybe I don't want to use all that bonus. So maybe I only want 205000 in year one. I got 300 in year two. I got 218000 And I'm still coming. I still got a lot more depreciation for the first six years than I would have otherwise. And then, it, and then eventually you start depleting all that and it kind of catches up. So, say, so Nate, what is the benefit of doing bonus depreciation on year one versus, uh, you know, year three or year five? It really depends. So, and so this is where I, I go back to what I was saying, that everybody's tax situation is different. So if somebody's going to have one big windfall year and they really just want to get all the benefit up front, if I've got a million bucks is going to get taxed at 37%, maybe I want it all right now. But maybe if I take that million bucks and it takes me negative, like so if I go back to that initial chart where we were going through the different tax rates, as you start going down through the tax brackets, you're getting less benefit. So maybe you don't want to take it all right now because maybe you're getting enough to offset your income and you want to have some for future years. Or maybe it's just getting suspended, so it's really not doing you a whole lot of good. It, I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons that you may want to do this differently, but that's where you just want to look at, you know, which option do I want to take? How do I want to elect? How how what's going to what's going to give me the result that I want? And I always like to look at not only what's my immediate benefit, but how's this going to play out in three and five and ten years? So just kind of knowing what that looks like. I mean. It, my crystal ball is not perfect, but based on the information I have right now, what what do I think might give me the best benefits? So well, you can always carry me, forward the you can always carry forward the passive loss right to other to future years, even though yes. you first year. As a passive, if you don't use it, you don't lose it. It just keeps it keeps carrying forward indefinitely. As a real estate professional, if you use it all in the first year, it's gone. I mean, there's some other rules that we won't get into, but I mean, it ta- it can take you down. It can take you down to negative income, so it's it's possible, but it's also taking you down through 12%. You know, some of that you're only getting the 12% benefit that maybe you're picking up down the road at a much higher rate. So, all these things are the things you want to be taking into consideration. Now, so that's that's kind of just an illustration of how the cost segregation adds an extra layer of deductions to somebody's return. What does that look like for each of the different types of investors? The real estate professional, the passive with some income, the passive without passive income. So similar similar slide, but let's just take it, let's just say that you got the 10% partners again, and let's look at some differences between doing no cost segregation and doing a cost segregation with some bonus. In that first year, that extra million dollars of depreciation. So maybe I've got $100,000 of income, $90,000 of expenses, not quite enough depreciation to take my income all the way down to zero. So let's just say in this case, it's 417 bucks at 37%. 
if this is what we did, the real estate professional, the passive with passive income, the passive without passive in, income, they'd all be picking up about 417 bucks, 37%. They're going to pay $150, $154 in tax. If you use your tax bracket, if you're at 12%, it's a lot lower than this. If I do a cost segregation, everybody's got that extra $90-some-odd-thousand-dollars of depreciation. So about nine, almost 93000 So in this case, if I'm a real estate professional, I got $92,000 in, in additional taxable losses that my net tax on that, it just reduced my tax bill by $34,000. If I'm a passive and I've got some other income that would have been taxed at, 50, at 37%, so let's just say they got 50000 I get to I get to offset fifty thousand of that income with fifty thousand of these losses, and I got forty two thousand dollars to carry forward to another year. Fifty thousand at thirty seven percent. I think if I remember right, it's about eighteen thousand five hundred. So that's eighteen thousand five hundred dollars. I don't have to pay this year. And if I'm a passive and I have no other passive income, I've got ninety two thousand dollars of losses I get to use down the road against something else. So let me clarify. Uh, let me ask a clarifying question. So, if you're passive without passive income, so passive income is not on one deal, right? You may, you may have a lot of losses on one deal. I mean, paper loss on one deal, but there's another positive income from another deal, I guess, right? That's why you get the passive income from another deal. So, is that right? Like this? Yeah. So, yeah, and I think that's a great way to clarify it. So, almost kind of look at at the right side of this, the passive without passive income is getting into your first deal. Uh-huh. You have no other passive income. So once you hit a taxable loss, those losses start building up behind the dam. The middle is somebody who's investing in several deals. Maybe they've maybe one of them sold and they picked and they've got fifty thousand dollars in gains. Well you know what? They're gonna pay tax on this, but suddenly they got into a, a new deal that had a cost segregation and maybe all all those all of that additional depreciation just offset all that income that they just got. So $50,000 in income, and yet they're not paying a dollar on it because the losses from this new deal they just got into just offset all that income they were going to get taxed on. And then you're, you're far left on here. The real estate professionals, the guy who's doing this every day as part of his business, and he's going to take the tax benefits on top of it and reduce you know, if the spouse is – a doctor making a million bucks a year gets to take $92,000 against that, just saves $34,000 in taxes. Got it. So if multiple deals, like the middle scenario, uh, when multiple deals, when let's say one deal is sold and you can take the passive income, passive gain from that deal and offset it with, with another deal, which is having a passive loss, right? So that's how you you don't pay exactly. tax on the gain, I guess. Okay, so that's a big benefit because you are not paying. That's, that's part of the, what I'd almost call the snowball. Okay, you start making the money off of one deal, you get into the next deal, and you use the losses from that one to offset mm-hmm. your gains from the prior one. Okay, and if someone doesn't sell the deal, uh, let's say you are in five deals and none of the deals uh, sells, and so all that passive losses uh, doesn't have any home to go, so they just keep on accumulating behind the dam, I guess, right? Until one day somebody sell yep. and you get gain, right? So okay. Yeah, and then they release the water from the dam. You get to use what what you can, and if you don't use it all, you got it to use against another deal down the road. 
So apart from real estate, is there any other passive gain that we might be able to get? Like, I don't know. Is it just real estate where you get passive losses and passive gain? Is there any other business venture that you can get passive gain that can be offset using real estate? Yeah, royalties, or if you're investing in other partnerships, if you if if it's not an active, I mean the rule the rules are going to get complicated. But if you're mm-hmm. let's just say you invest in some other business mm-hmm. and you're passive, so maybe somebody approaches you and you know, hey, I've got this business deal, it's making money, and you know I'm picking up income off of it. This is another way to get something to offset some of that some of that income. So like I so can it's invest. Not just limited to real estate. So I can invest on a on a McDonald's business passively, and I can take that gain from there, and you know, minus that off with the real estate um, passive loss. Yeah, in in general, the in general passive income, passive losses. So if it qualifies as passive income, then you can mm-hmm. you can net the two together and, and take the benefits. So okay. I mean, there's there's a lot of other rules you want to look at, but that's kind of the game plan. Okay, got it. So again, again, talk to your tax advisor. Just make sure that you qualify. Yeah. Worst case, you don't want to get in there thinking that this is going to work, and you know somebody throws a new fact at you, and it doesn't. But that, but if it's passive income, you use these passive losses to offset that income. So this is a good way to reduce what you're paying. Got it. Got it. So what are the benefits of cost segregation? You lower your taxable income. There's potential for increased cash flow. And then also you can start writing off items when they're replaced or renovated. So going back to that depreciation recapture, another thing we sometimes do is we'll go through and say, you know what, we cost segregated these things. We don't even own some of this stuff anymore. I don't have recapture on something I don't own anymore. Recapture is on that building. If I've taken the depreciation, I still own the building. When I sell it, I've got the depreciation recapture. If I disposed of it, I don't have that depreciation recapture. So there's other other ways to continue to whittle away at this. And so there are ways. There are, sorry. So there are ways to not even capture that twenty five percent. You can just say it's gone. It's yeah. Depend. I mean, it, you you actually have to not have the thing. Okay. But so let's just say I've got let's say I do a cost segregation and then I need to replace the roof. Okay. Well, that roof had a value, but I just tore it apart and threw it in the trash. And I just put on a brand new roof. Well, I'm not gonna I get to start depreciating that new roof and I write off that old roof. So there there's some other other things we can do like a partial disposition and we can write off the asset and then all we're picking up is the depreciation recapture on the new roof. The depreciation we took on the old roof, it's already gone. So it's just it's just long-term capital gain on that. And with the cost segregation, you don't have to do it the first year. I mean, it can be done in the future, and you just catch up with what you've missed. So, I mean, there there are lots of great things about cost segregation. You just want to know how it applies in your situation. Now, what are the caveats? Potentially, you might be picking up some things at some other some other rates. So when I change when I take it to five or seven year property or 15 year property, it may go into a different bucket that's taxed differently. So, you know, maybe tax it up to 37%. If it results in passive losses, the passive 
the passive investors may have that money that's just sitting there waiting to be used. And some t- and if you want to go into like hunt exchanges, certain parts and you know this is this is being litigated right now, but may not qualify for like hunt exchange. So you may still be picking up some income on a like hunt exchange. And then if you're a real estate professional, you know, this is the sort of thing that gives me lots of work to do because we're trying to figure out the next the next way to take all take the tax advantages of being in real estate. So you know, and there's less depreciation in future years. So there there are you know, there are lots of great things about it. You just kinda wanna know that, you know, here when I when I talk about wanting to know what's gonna happen three, five, ten years down the road, these are the other things to be aware of. So when you're when you're making these decisions you wanna just make sure you know how that works. But I, I love being in the I love being in the United States. I love doing taxes, and but I also love to help my clients figure out the every legal way we can help them only pay what they're required to. There's nothing there's nothing that requires us to figure out every dollar we possibly could pay and give it over to the IRS. We just have to do what's legal. And all the things I'm talking about are all in the code. They've been litigated. They've gone through tax court. You know, they, these are these are things that when I walk into an, an office with an IRS agent, I'm very happy to point out where it all comes from. And I've got and these are all things that are it's not smoke and mirrors and it's not snake oil. You know, these are things that have been tested through all the tax courts and district courts and everything else. It's in the code. It's allowed. It's just. There's two types of tax. There's the tax for the informed, and there's the tax for the uninformed. I just want to make sure my, that my clients only pay as much as they have, absolutely have to. And you know, if we can find a benefit, that's what we're looking for. And let me hit this. Actually, I'm going to skip down to one more slide, and then I'll come, come back to this other one. So I mentioned the like-kind exchange. This is another way to continue to to move the ball down the road and kick that bucket down the road. I if I decide I've got this building and I want to move into a bigger building, maybe I sell it to somebody, I can give the money to an exchanger and the buyer and as the buyer I use those proceeds to buy a new build, new bigger building, I start depreciating more and I just start the cycle over again. So you this is a way to continue to defer the game. But you got to have a qualified intermediary, and you can also you can get cash out afterwards by refinancing the new property. Now, of course, I also I like it when people usually hold at least one to two years just to show the intent. There's reasons why you do this, but since I mentioned it with a cost segregation, I thought I might just jump ahead to this and then jump back to the next slide. So this is just yet another way where we can continue to kick that tax can down the road. It's all legal. Now, let me hit this one just because this this is, some people have self-directed funds in a retirement account. And so I'd like to just point this IRA and you're thinking about investing in, in a real estate deal. I want you to be aware of, of another concept that called Unrelated Debt Financed Income, UDFI. And th- this is kind of the way I – so if you've, got a, if you've got a retirement account and you want to buy into an apartment complex, 
Now, you can't do this with like a Vanguard fund or a Fidelity fund or Schwab or anything like that. But if you've got a self-directed fund and you don't want to pull out the money and get taxed on it and then try and use what's left, this is an option that's out there. It, but it's got extra reporting and extra things that you just need to be aware of. So in a simple scenario, let's say I buy a million-dollar building. We put in half cash, half loan. If my revenue expenses, depreciation, my net income is 50000 bucks. And let's just say my portion is 20%. I've got half of that is debt financed. So half of that income is potentially subject to unrelated debt, debt financed income. And it can be taxed at 35, 37%, just, to, just depending. So I don't want to go into all, all of the stuff other than just make people aware that people are able to use retire tax deferred retirement money, but there are, there are, additional reporting and tax consequences. So just just be aware that even though the option is out there, there there are some things to keep, just kind of keep on the front burner so you, it doesn't surprise you. So unless you use a solo 401k uh, plans, right, or QRP plans, then you're exempt from UDFI. Yeah, a self-directed 401k wouldn't be subject. That's a, and that's actually my preferred method. It's got some other other things that you want to be aware of, but I bring this up for those because a, a lot more people have self-directed IRA funds available than self-directed 401ks. Yeah. So, Good. So yeah. This is I chapter. I bring this one up just for a tax side. Okay. Chapter seven in my passive investing book explains this. Perfect. And so, yeah, I I kind of like this slide here. Be, being a tax guy, and I and I enjoy looking for for all the different things that help my clients save money. You know, it, I don't. This is this is not me. I don't I don't have a loophole named after me, but you know, I do like finding the ways that keep more of my my clients' money in their own pockets instead of putting it in the hands of Uncle Sam. As long as I can do it legally, and they're comfortable with it, then you know those are the things where, you know, we're we're just taking advantage of the laws that have been given to us. And so, just kind of, I think one of the last things we were talking about is getting ready for your tax returns. One, what are what are some suggestions here? Keep your tax documents together. Preferably, the more organized and the more you're ready, the easier it is for your tax person. I mean, if you if all you have is a W two and a 1099 and TurboTax is good for you, you know, then that that works. If things are getting complicated and you're not sure that you're getting the right answer, or you think maybe you're missing out on something, that's where you it's probably a good time to enro- to enlist a professional to help you out. But if you keep your tax documents together, look at look at what you've got on previous returns and just compare to say, you know what. I don't remember what happened here, so, but it just kind of gives you an idea of things that you may may have or may be missing. Check your bank accounts. Look at your t- at your credit cards for things that may be taxable transactions. If you're doing your charitable contributions through your through your credit card, it's probably a good way to make sure you don't miss some. Uh, start communications with your tax person early and often. I mean, the more we talk, the more we can help. I like my clients reaching out to me on a constant basis because we have fewer surprises. The people who show up in April and want a tax return and haven't talked to me in a year, I, at that point, there's not as much that we can do. 
I mean, we still have to follow the laws. We still have to do what is legally required. And the earlier in the year that you start having those conversations, the more advantages or the more planning that can be done to reduce your taxes in the future. And then ask questions if something doesn't make sense. You know, I heard this. It doesn't make sense to me. Well, you know, is it because of something that we didn't know? Is there, you know, what what is it that doesn't make sense to you? We can kind of figure that out before things get issued, and then we have to go back through and figure out how we correct it. So just because it's in your head doesn't mean we know it. The more that we talk and communicate, the more that we can get you the best benefit. And take so extensions are your friend, but it only extends the time to get it right, not to pay the tax. So if what you ultimately owed is paid by April 15th, there's no penalties, there's no interest, there's you know, you're fine. If you owe some more, you can extend. It saves you from some harsher penalties, but there's still some interest for borrowing the government's money at that point. Because if, it, if you owe it to the government, they just want to give you some incentives to pay it to them faster. So, Nate, is it better to invest through LLC in terms of tax perspective or for passive investors, or their personal name is the same as for tax perspective? Depends on the LLC. So, in general, I would say, I mean, really, an LLC is just a, is, is usually a flow-through entity, so it really doesn't tend to make a lot of difference, but it depends on depends on the scenario. But let's just say that it's an LLC, it's my LLC and nobody else owns it. It really doesn't make it's the same thing. If I've got taxes C Corp, it could be different. There's reasons why you set things up. But an LLC for in the tax world is just this chameleon. It could be anything. So when tell me, somebody tells me that they've got an LLC, a lot of times I'm, my thought is this may not even impact anything. For tax purposes, this may mean nothing. It's a legal entity. But we, it's, it's what we call a disregarded entity for tax purposes. So we, we just pretend like it's not there is, essential, is what that really means. Oops. Okay, let's go and do a Q&A. Um, are you able to see the chat box, uh, Nate, and the Q&A box? Uh, not necessarily, but I'll see if I can find it. Okay, can I see? So, okay, we can go to the questions in the in the chat box, and then after that, we can go to the Q&A box. Okay, so the first question, um, as a passive investor with a 100K investment, let's say I claim K1 losses of 80K in year one. Is there any repercussion when the asset is sold after five years and the investment is closed? Okay, can you repeat that one? I think I found the chat, maybe, maybe Q&A? I just Maybe I should just put it, yeah, can you find? Which one you can see? Yeah, it, it, top or bottom? Uh, there's Q&A and uh, there's a chat box. Like I'm just going to put the... Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the Q&A. Oh, Q&A. Okay, let's go to the Q&A boxes, then we can come back to the chat box. So let's start from the first one, right? Okay. My, my spouse... Is a so my... Okay, go ahead. Go, go for it. No, no, why not? You've been hearing me a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm sure they'd rather have you read the question and me respond. <laughs> My spouse is a full-time realtor and I'm on a W-2. Can we avail bonus depreciation from the K-1 issued for our multifamily investment as a LP, even though we don't have 10% equity stake in the deal? Well, so this this is where I'm going to go into my my 
my typical general speech. So you're going to hear me say in general a lot because it depends on a lot of underlying facts and circumstances. But full-time realtor, so if it's a real estate agent, real estate agents don't qualify as real estate professionals. A real estate broker does. A real estate agent does not. So that's one of the first caveats. If you have bonus depreciation as a limited partner, if you don't have the 10% equity stake, if you're a passive, you know they're, they're, all those different rules come into play. So I think the first question is, are you passive? And if you are, let's go back to what I said. The You don't qualify as a real estate professional. You're going to have to have passive income to offset, to, to use those passive losses. Otherwise, it's going to just build up behind the dam. But if you're an agent and um, so you're saying agent doesn't qualify. So if they do just buy and sell houses, they don't qualify. But if they own rentals, and they're working on it as an agent, then they qualify, right? Well, so, okay. So let's let's break down a little bit more of what the real estate professional is. You've got to be in the business of real estate, but a real estate agent doesn't qualify. It means you're a real estate in the in the business of real estate and for those of you who are trying to fall asleep quickly tonight, let me just give you some internal revenue code that you can go look up. If you have trouble falling asleep, this is a great way to do it. Go look up an internal revenue code 469 C7, and it lists out a whole bunch of different things that qualify. It's leasing, it's management, it's construction, it's reconstruction, it's brokerage. I mean, there there are there are things that qualify. Let's just say it's, in general, it's a real estate business. But a, re- a real estate agent is not listed. A real estate broker is. So if you're a broker and you meet all the other qualifications, maybe you can. If you are an agent, you don't qualify as a real estate professional. You fall back in that passive bucket, and that's that's the route you need to be looking at is do I have passive income to use this against? Got it. Okay, so you can't take Next the one. bonus depreciation in W two. Okay, what's the best offer to make the property to make on a property that has a value of seventeen million and NOI? Oh, this is this doesn't seem to be like a tax question, right? Okay, I think that one sounds more like an operations question. I think I'm going to kick that one over to you. <laughs> no, I'm not going to answer it on a tax benefit <laughs> <laughs> webinar, but uh, that's a separate uh, show. So, uh, Cheryl, uh, reach out to me, James at Achieve Investment Group. We'll, we'll talk separately. This, I mean, this we are going to talk a lot more about tax, right? So, let's go to the next question. Can I roll over my passive income from one group to another company as investment? Or is that something I need to report my tax return in the same year? Okay, so let me see. Let me, let me break this down. If this is not what you're asking, then maybe just email, like email that access at Lifetime TA. And we can we can see if we can give you a, a generalized answer. I think what what's being asked is if if I've got income on one property and maybe I'm investing with multiple people, can I use those losses from other other syndications against the income and in, in you know so if I'm with James and somebody else, can I use the losses from somebody else against income from James, or can I use the losses from James against somebody else? If if you're in that passive bucket and you've got passive income from one, you got passive losses from another, then yes, those losses generally should offset. Yeah, so the answer is yes. Generally, yes. right. Okay. 
Yeah. Every, every, every answer I'm going to say here is generally because the IRS has rules and there's exceptions to the rules. There's exceptions to the exceptions. There's exceptions to the exceptions to the exceptions and so on and so forth. So somebody needs to have a good grasp of all the facts to be able to apply that law. Okay, let's go to the next question. If using a self-directed IRA to invest passively in syndication, is there a way to not have to pay UBIT? Or do you recommend not to use SDRIA for syndicated properties? I think it depends. I've got clients where it makes sense. I've got clients where I think it's a lot of extra time and effort, but at the end of the day, it's their money to, to do what they want to with it. Um, the rules have changed a little bit on there, but because they, they've gotten more restrictive within the self-directed IRAs now, but if you like the self-directed IRAs and you don't want to pay the taxes by yanking the money out, then, I mean, there are, there are ways to maybe reduce it some. But that's that's gonna be that's gonna get really really technical. So, but you can move it to a solo solo four hundred one k account, I guess, right? That that is it. If you if you have that option, my my preference is solo four hundred one ks. But that but those come with extra rules and strings attached. So you still want to you still want to go. You still just want to take a look at it with somebody who knows what they're talking about. Yeah. Yep. So I, I can see, like I said, I, I can see reasons to do it. I can see reasons not to, and some, but it depends on where you're at and and how you want to use the funds and what do you think tax rates are going to do and a lot of other factors. Yep. So the next question is: I've had had not heard the qualifies real estate professionals 150 hours was per property. Thought it was for all activities, regardless regardless of number of properties. Can you clarify, please? Yeah. So it's 750 hours. And one of the things I alluded to is there's an election you can make to aggregate everything together. So let's say you've got 400, 400 hours on one property and 400 hours on another property. You don't qualify as a real estate professional on either one. If you elect to group them together, you've got 800 hours. And if you if it's also more than half your time, then you qualify. But okay. you need, you're supposed to be making that election. Okay, so you can still do it, I guess, by making that election. Yeah, it's technically by property, but there are going back to the example. If you got ten properties, there aren't enough hours in the year to to aggregate them. So, you, so the IRS gives you some administrative convenience to say, "I'm just going to if I've got a, if I've got thirty five properties, I'm a real estate professional. There's no way I can meet that unless I make this election. Just you just want to know what that election means too. So. The IRS giveth, they take they taketh away. Just kind of just kind of know when you're making an election, you're, there's a reason you have to make that election. It's not just get, you know there are there are other consequences by making elections. Okay, next question. As a passive investor with 100k investment, let's say I claim K1 losses of 80k in year one. Is there any repercussion when the asset is sold after five years and the investment is closed? Well, you got less capital in there. Depending on what happens, if you sell it for 100k, you've taken eighty thousand dollars in losses. You're probably, I mean, this this is this is far too broad to say, but you might be, if you were to put in a hundred thousand dollars and only get back a hundred thousand dollars, you 
you've got those eighty thousand dollars in losses, you may be picking up eighty thousand dollars in gains. Depends on what happens actually in the business, but mm-hmm. that's kind of how that would work. If or let's just take it down. Let's say you make two hundred thousand dollars, your basis dropped to twenty thousand dollars. You're probably going to be picking up one hundred eighty thousand dollars in gains. But you know what? At that point, I'm walking away happy. I put in $100,000. I'm walking away with $200,000. And worst case scenario, I pay some tax on some money, and I walk away with a lot of, a lot more money. Hmm. And you still get capital gain at 20% and recapture at 25%, right? So you still be making money, I guess, right? Yeah, you'd still be making money, and then there's other ways to defer the, defer the taxes. So, I mean, it, it, it depends on what my crystal ball says and, and just kind of what your individual situation looks like. Yep. Okay, next question. So assuming we... nothing changes. Yeah, assuming the tax law doesn't change, this is kind of how it works. Okay, if you the next question, if you inherit a building in a will, can you depreciate it at that time? Yes, and this gets into some estate planning, but you would pr- if it's a will and depending on how how it's willed over to you, so if it's part of an inheritance, you may also de- Depending on what state you live in, and a bunch of other things, you may get a step up in basis. You may be able to appreciate more more of the building even after it's been depreciated a bunch. But that one is going to get very complicated, especially for this scenario. So if you've got a situation like that, again, I would talk to my tax person and see kind of what what looks like it's happening and what advantages can we take. So the next one is depreciation cost segregation don't apply to an older asset older than 27 years. Is that correct? Mm, no, no, that's not, I get not correct. Can on that one? I think uh, he's asking whether we can do this depreciation and cost segregation, you know, for property older than 27 years. I mean, all my properties are more than 27 years old and we do cost segregation on, and bonus depreciation on mm-hmm. almost all of them. So yeah. Oh, I, I, oh, I, I, okay. Yeah, I think I follow what you're saying. Yeah, just it's 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 a new asset to you when you buy it. Yeah. So, so when someone buys it, it's considered new. It's year, year zero, right? Yeah, for you to you, it's new. So maybe somebody okay. else had depreciated it when mm-hmm. they sell it. Yeah, they they're going to pick up all their gains and everything else. But if James goes and buys a new building for twenty seven for twenty seven five, let's say it was built in nineteen sixty. Uh-huh. He gets to take that twenty-seven-five building and depreciate it over twenty-seven and a half years, or maybe he cost segregates it and gets, you know, extra depreciation in the first year. Yeah, and this is only happens in the U.S., right? That's, I don't think so. There's any other country does that. Most countries does uh, new building, right? When they start new building, they give you twenty-seven years depreciated, and that's it. You can't take it more than that. But I think only in the U.S. you can buy an old building and start depreciating from year zero. So I, I'm I don't do international tax. <laughs> no. Okay, I know you. I'm not, I'm not going to hold you accountable, but that's what I heard from other people who are living overseas. I I couldn't pr- I couldn't prove or disprove that one. Okay. But here you can basically you know you can buy an older building. You start from year zero. You have twenty seven years, right? Twenty seven point five. Yeah. So if, I, if I let's say somebody bought it for a million bucks back in nineteen sixty, we buy it for twenty seven and a half million bucks now. We get to depreciate the twenty-seven and a half million bucks. Okay. Okay. Next question. 
next question is spend a lot of time discussing the nuances of cost segregation versus not applying cost segregation then how each decision is heavily dependent on individual taxpayer specific situation so it needs to be considered in that light but as passive investor in a syndicated real estate investment what influence does passive investor really have on how a syndicated determines whether to leverage the cost segregation method or bonus depreciation or not uh that's just it's just a factor you want to know getting into it whether they want to do cost segregation and how it impacts you so at some point somebody's got to make the call yeah and so it's it's probably just more knowing what that means for you so if somebody's looking at it just understanding the impacts and how it can benefit you yeah but someone buying an apartment like which it. uh with the intent of flipping it in one or two years would that be good time to do a cost segregation or would that be a good strategy to do a cost segregation or bonus depreciation uh, here here here's kind of my rule of thumb is the longer you hold it the more cost segregation makes sense okay sometimes you just may have a big taxable event where it, it may make sense even in just a short period but generally i don't like cost segregations until if you're not going to hold it for minimum of 3 years the longer you hold it the more benefit you get because really what you're doing is you are taking you're accelerating the depreciation that may take years to get and moving it up so it's your time you value of money against one year yeah the time value of money and cash flows and various other things but most of the most of the benefit come what you're really trying to do is accelerate your expenses and when you turn around and sell it you pick them back up So how long you're going to kick that can down the road is a factor. So I 3 years is typically the shortest period that I generally see makes some sense and you still have to you still have to look at the numbers. Okay. But if you're going to be holding for 10 or 20 years, it makes a lot more sense. Got it. Yeah. So 3 years, 5 years, 7 years the longer it goes, the more the more I like cost segregation. one year two years mm, yeah let's look at what we're trying to accomplish and why yeah so next question for a multifamily passive k1 is all investment considered to be at risk from an irs point of view so it depends on what you put in there and there are so you you've got basis and you've got at risk and so some of that starts to get into how the deal structured who who's on the hook what you've put in there and you got so from an at risk from an at risk perspective your at risk capital is usually going to be if you put in $100,000 and you're a limited partner they can they can't come at you, after you for any other way so that all depends on how the deal structured your at risk capital is what you can lose so if you can't lose more than $100,000 your your at risk is probably $100,000 If you've guaranteed a note, you're at risk maybe a whole lot higher. Okay, the next one um to uh next question to clarify as someone my first passive deal there was a cost segregation done on the property. I'm not in any other deals right now. If the property sells before I'm in another deal, can I retain those carry forward losses before the before they sell the original property to be used towards passive income? once I start getting into further deals down the road. Can you discuss the difference between return of capital versus what is considered income? 
fine but this is a lot of questions here why not can you read this and answer one by one Nate? this is oh okay so let's see if i if i go through this to clarify okay so first deal i'm not in any other deals so this kind of goes to that first scenario that i was showing early earlier in the presentation we've got no other passive losses if if we do a cost segregation we've got those suspended losses that are going to start building up behind the dam if i sell First, it, it depends on what I sell at. What I sell at. If I still have some, if I have some losses at, at that point. So if I get a whole bunch of income, and my suspended losses are not enough, or if I've got more suspended losses than I pick up in income, actually the rest of those losses are gonna are, are gonna release, and you can use it against your ordinary income or anything else. It, what I tend to see is usually the gains are bigger than the suspended losses. So usually you, you still have something left that you're going that you're you're still going to end up picking up some taxable income if you're not into another deal. Uh, difference between return of capital versus what is considered income. I, I think this may be getting to the taxable income versus distributions. So your taxable income is whatever's coming through your Revenues minus your expenses minus the depreciation is your taxable income. But you may get distributions, which is more of a return of capital. So just because you get a $10,000 check doesn't mean that's an additional $10,000 of income. It means that you got you got $10,000 that reduced your investment in your partnership. So that's kind of, therein lies the difference. People returning money to you so out of those cash flows if we go back to that very first example where I was showing the cash flows and I was talking about you pick up $100,000 of income, but you can you can have $100,000 of taxable loss. If they're distributing out that income, it's just it's just returning your capital to you. And this, there's without going into the, the capital basis and debt basis and everything else, you may be getting some of your money back without getting it without picking up additional tax. Somewhere down the road, if you start to get more than what you put in, you might start picking up what's, what's called distributions in excess of basis, in which case you might have some additional tax. Again, it's it's a when you've got questions, this is a good time to talk to your tax person. I think what uh, I think what they're asking is, and someone return of capital, right, versus return of on capital, right, which is a profit, right? Is there a difference in terms of tax code? For tax purposes, not really. So you're, whatever you put in plus whatever you're getting taxed on is going to impact what's return on capital versus return of capital. But when you're getting checks out of the partnership, you're getting taxed on the income and losses, and then any cash coming out is kind of secondary. There usually is not much of a tax impact. So like if we buy a building and let's say in two or three years we refinance the building, you may get a lot of proceeds out. And if you still have enough basis, you may not have a tax consequence from doing that. Okay, I just enable all attendees to see the questions. I was not aware they could not see the questions. Um, there was also one last question in the same uh, question. Um, if I invest another 50000 in the future, when do I get to use those carry-forward losses? 
depends on when you got passive income. It depends on. So we're reading they, the they question spend, from Sam Furman, right? Uh, that's the question that we're reading, right? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm looking at right now. So when do I get to use those carry forward losses if, as a passive? Typically when I have other passive income to offset them. So if I keep building that all those losses up behind the dam, they don't release until I've got some income to use them against. So it kind of wash, it kind of puts out the fire. Okay, let's go to the next question. All the files could help give these questions. Uh, that was the operation question. Any suggestion on how and where to set up a QRP or advice for against? Oh, uh, well, do your due diligence, kind of like kind of like finding a tax tax person. Interview several, and I mean, it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish, what restrictions do you want to have on your income, how do you want to pay taxes, when do you want to pay taxes. It, sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. If you want to use a qualified retirement plan, personally, I I like self-directed 401k is better doesn't necessarily mean it's right for you but you know and, they, and those come with other restrictions so you it really just depends on what what your situation looks like yeah I, I i i would love to give blanket answers but i think that oversimplifies things and gets people in a lot of trouble to say that every time you should do something yeah Hi, Larry, so I have a few contacts on setting up QRP, so you can shoot me a mail, I can give you some contacts, and you can talk to the experts there on what's the good and bad about QRP, yeah, which is solo 401k, right? So there's another name for it. Yeah. Okay, let's go to the next question. Um, I, I, think, I think this was the earlier question about the real estate agent, right? Uh, so the real estate agent wouldn't qualify, but if you're trying to do your own multifamily deal, then you got to look at how many hours are you spending on the multifamily, how many hours are you spending as a real estate agent, and that's that's where you have to go through and look at the facts. So if you're spending more than half your time in a real estate business, again, the real estate agent not qualifying, then if it's more than half on the multifamily deal, maybe managing, leasing, construction, something else it's still possible, but I'd have to know the facts. Okay. So the next question, what is considered passive income that may offset passive losses and syndication for passive investor? Is it gain from property sale or annual distribution? I think we answered this during the presentation, but you can quickly answer it. Yeah. So passive income would include rent income, royalties, income from other passive businesses, I mean, there's there's different things that would would fall into those buckets, and and it does include the it, it does include the gains on a sale of a building. So if you if you've got losses, and this a lot of times we may get to the point where we still have taxable losses on on the rent income, but we've got gains on the sale. So you can you can still release them at that point. So typically, this is where if you only got the one deal. If you still have suspended losses, usually they get they usually get used up. You get used up at the property sale, right? When that's a gain, I guess, right? At the property sale, 
Yeah, because yep. a lot a lot of those suspended losses are typically going to be coming from the depreciation. Well, your depreciation reduced your basis, so you're picking it back up in the gain on the sale. So if you sell it for more than you bought it for, you're probably going to pick up those pick up all that depreciation and more when you sell. Which is a benefit, right? Because you know you're paying less taxes yeah. on the gain, I guess. Yep. Yeah, de- de- depending on on your ordinary income and how all this stuff flows through to each year. But if we took it at thirty seven percent and shifted it down to a fifteen or twenty percent rate, then we got let's say if it's, let's just say it went from thirty seven to twenty percent. You you save seventeen cents on every dollar. But again, it depends on it depends on your situation. Okay, next question. UDFI, does payment of tax have to come out from self-directed Roth IRA or can it be paid with funds outside of IRA? The tax has to be paid by the IRA. It's So your IRA or your Roth IRA is a separate entity. If you, if you pay the tax outside of the IRA, it's like you made a contribution to your IRA. You may get into some other, other fund rules. So usually it's good to make sure you've got enough tax or you got enough cash on hand to be able to pay it out. Otherwise you may get some, you may have to kind of deal with some letters and some penalties from the IRS. So the tax, the tax needs to be paid from the IRA. Yep. And and the next question by the same person, if loss, UDFI, if loss associated with that, that portion, can it be carried forward? Yes. It's, it's just like having another passive loss. Okay. The rule the rules changed a little bit, so it's a little more complicated within a self directed IRA. But those losses, if you if you're filing your returns, then you carry them forward and they release against your income. Okay, next question: Can loss in non real estate passive investment be used to reduce taxable passive real estate income? I think we discussed this. Non real estate passive investment be used to yeah. I think we're talking about royalty and uh, you know investment, passive investment in non-real estate business, right? Yeah. So this is this sounds like it's almost just the flip of what we've been talking about. But if you have a passive loss and you have passive income, passive loss can offset passive income. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you can do this. This is a yes, I guess, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. If you have if you have a passive loss somewhere, you have passive income somewhere else. The passive loss can offset the passive income. Oh, got it. Got it. Got it. In, well, let me let me say in general, passive loss can be used passive offset passive income. There could be some exception, but without knowing the, the facts, in general, that's how it's going to work. Okay. I think this one we already answered. I think you answered that uh, same question. The next question: A like kind exchange must be done by the entity, right? Yes, so a like-kind exchange, people get really creative with like-kind exchanges, but this is where you want to get a qualified intermediary and you want to get a lot of good legal and tax counsel. But generally, you have to have the same taxpayer starting and finishing the thing. So if you've got a partnership that starts it, the same partnership needs to finish it. If you start trying to get too creative, it's... Let's let's just say you might be spending a lot of time trying to defend what happened, and and the outcomes may not always be favorable. Yep. So the next question: uh, cost segregation will method determined by syndication uh, applied to all owners in the property? Yeah, pretty much. Yep. Yeah, the syndication. What the syndication does is 
the return, everything flows through to all the partners based on the agreement. So they're, they're, it's really determined at the partnership level. Okay. Uh, next question. Does payment of tax have to come from... Okay, so that's the same question. <laughs> Why do you like S subdirector IRAs better? No, I don't, but I like I like self-directed 401ks better. Okay. But they have they have different rules. And whether you want to do it personally, just yank the funds out and invest the money personally, or whether you want to leave it in, that's a personal decision. So that's facts and circumstances. Some people just don't want to pay the tax personally, and so they'd rather leave it in there. But there's reasons I like them. There's reasons I don't. It's a personal decision. So the last, not the last question, I mean, the last question of the Q&A box, if you qualify as a real estate professional, then do you need to have 10% equity in the deal to take bonus depreciation? To take the bonus, you get allocated the bonus depreciation whether you are a real estate professional or not. That's just allocated to you. How you can use it depends on what you qualify for. So you can be a real estate professional in other areas you may not be a real estate professional in a syndicated deal. And so as a passive, it may be allocated to you. You may or may not be able to use it. But if you're a passive with 10% ownership, are you able to take it? Uh, well, if you have passive income as a, pass, as, as a passive investor, you, might, you can use it against passive income. Yeah, but if you're – so it depends. Let's, let's take this two different ways. If I'm if I'm James and I qualify as a real estate professional and I own more than ten percent of the deal, then can I use it this year? Yes, because it released it it becomes an ordinary loss that I can use. If I'm a passive investor, then I still get allocated that ten percent, but do I can I use it against other passive income or do I, or does it get suspended? That's where the rest of your of your picture comes into play. Okay. Got it. So it, you've got to look at first, do I qualify as a real estate professional in this deal? So am I a real estate professional or am I a passive? If I'm a real estate professional, yes. If I'm a passive, then you, you kind of move down that decision tree of, do I have something that will allow me to use it now or do I store it up for the future? So it doesn't matter how much percentage you own. You can own like 15% or 20% of the deal as a passive and you still can't qualify as a real estate professional in that deal. Is that right? Not unless you're, not unless you're doing the real, not unless you're spending at least 500 hours, you meet all the real estate professional qualifications and so on and so forth. So it gets a lot okay. more complicated. Okay. Okay. So if you are a completely passive in that deal, even though you own 20% of the deal, you're still not going to be counted as a real estate professional in that particular deal. Most likely not. This goes back to that comment I made early on. I've got real estate professionals who qualify as a real estate professional in their own deals. Mm. And when they invest in other deals, they're passives. Okay, got it. Okay, so the answer is no, I guess. Yeah, in general, usually not. <laughs> Um, so the next question, uh, some question of the chat box. How is property considered de 
depreciated if the market value of the property is increasing year after year in a seller's market. But it's just a text. Okay, so this is, <laughs> there's a lot of chat in here. You want to tell me where you're at in this one? Uh, I'm at 728. Uh, 728. PM, 7.20 PM. Okay, house property considered depreciated. Increasing? Yeah, that is just a tax code, right? Yeah. Yeah, so tax code looks at cost, and this is where tax tax code and reality diverge. So just like stock, my stock could be going up, but the cost still still stays the same. In a similar scenario, the value, and this is where you get equity, equity capture and some other things that are kind of outside the scope of tax, but it's just kind of how real estate investing works, and I'm going to leave that to James to explain. <laughs> okay. But I can have, I may have bought the building at a million bucks. Maybe it's worth a hundred million right now. Maybe I bought it at a million bucks. I depreciated it. Or let's go. Let me let me make my numbers easy for me. I bought it for two point seven. I bought it for two million seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. After twenty seven and a half years, it's my basis is zero. But maybe the property is worth a hundred million bucks. It's it's gone up. I have this unrealized, uncaptured, untapped hundred million dollar asset. So that when I do sell it, I pick up a hundred million dollars in gains. It. But, you know, I've been using this depreciation, taking the wear and tear on it. And then when I sell it, that's when I pick it up. Yep. So my asset could be worth a whole lot more than what my tax basis is. It's just when I turn around and sell it, that's the realization event. And that's when I recognize the income unless I unless I go through something else and do a like kind of exchange or if I, you know, buy into some other ones and I use the pro, I use the losses from those to offset the gains on it. So that's where you can, it, that's where the game gets fun. Yep. Is how, how do I continue to invest in the real estate and pay less or no tax on it? Okay. So can we get the copy of a slide please? So please send a mail to Nate. Um, if you want to get a copy of the slides, I will send out the recording for people who registered. Um, next question is, do I need a tax person if I just have K-1s? I would say that's a personal decision. So if you feel like you've got it right when you get done, you're you're pretty confident in your answer and you don't think you need a tax person, maybe not. If you get through and say, did I do this right? And I really have no idea that might be a good time to try and make sure you got a tax person in your corner. Yep. I think that's it. The rest are pretty straightforward. So so you want to send a mail to you, means it's access at lifetimeta.com, right? Yes, please. That'll, be, that'll give us a good start because we'll we'll put all of our watermarks and IP and everything else on there. And then, you know, I've just got, I've got to get with our legal department to make sure that what I'm, when I'm sending out, I've done all my disclaimers and everything else. Okay. All right, I think we are done. Thank you very much for coming in. Um, you know, for those registered, you'll get the recording. And if you want the slides, send a mail to Nate at uh, access at lifetimeta.com. Yeah, and James, I appreciate you having me on here. Thanks for thanks for going through all this. Hopefully, we got a lot of questions answered and maybe yeah, sparked some new ones. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think there's a lot of uh, passive investors always ask me questions on you know benefits on how does it translates and all that. We we did put at 
pretty high level, but of course, you know, tax is complicated and everybody need to talk to the CPA to really understand the details, I guess. But at very high level, this was really, really beneficial. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and if I may, I wish I could explain it all in an hour. And if I could, if I could explain it and everybody could understand it in an hour, I'd probably have a job. But if it were that simple. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully it's at least, hopefully this, this kind of gives everybody a little bit more of a peek behind the curtain. Yep. Yep. All right. Thank you all. Uh, thanks for your time. Thanks, Nate, for joining and right. presenting. Take, Thank all you. Right. Take care. Bye. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.